so I like to uh, conceive of the spiritual path in different ways. And uh, as I talk about it in and from different ways, uh, I, I think it kind of allows us to shift perspectives and sometimes see what we've been doing in a different way. And uh, so I, I find it helpful, or always found it helpful in myself, to lif- listen to different teachers in different traditions and see if I could understand from the experiential base I was having in my practice what each was pointing to uh, towards uh, that experience. And so my words may be a little different than what other teachers use. I do that deliberately, but I hope it's helpful to you. It's meant to be. It's not meant to be um, off-putting. So so tonight I want to talk about the spiritual journey uh, in terms of an ascent and a descent. And uh, when you live around the Cascade Mountains (laughs) uh, and you're constantly bearing witness to Mount Rainier, which covers the much of the landscape in Seattle, uh, thinking in terms of uh, journeying up a mountain and down a mountain becomes a logical choice of subjects. So uh, that and and also the fact that when I was uh, young, pre-adolescent, although I get younger every time I tell this story. (laughs) So when I was in the womb, <laughs> no, when I was pre-adolescent, sometime in there, I remember uh, feeling a very uh, stuck or uh, contained is the better word, contained within my consciousness. I don't. I didn't seem to be able to uh, to get out of it. Uh, and uh, all my every thought, it felt blocked. If I didn't feel like I had any access to anything else than my thinking or uh, to my views and to my opinions. And all the arrows really pointed inward. And uh, being young, um, I was inquisitive. And I asked around to see if other people were having a problem with that. (laughs) Turns out they're having a problem with me asking about that. So, you know, you learn to shut up when you aren't met with any kind of answer. Although the problem never went away, I learned to live within it, of course, as most of us, of all of us do. Uh, But uh, at some point, uh, feeling that sense of being contained uh, reached a kind of critical point sometime after college where I really wanted to search and see if there were others that felt that same sense of confinement. And then that led to uh, accessing different spiritual journeys and different perceptions of that. But that's really where this talk comes from. Because I think most of us start off very contained, dense within ourselves. I I like the word density because we, the sense of I is very dense. The sense of self is very uh, firmly in control. It seems to be, you know, the, the moderator and the doer and the decider and, and the entity in there. Uh, and uh, it, it, 
it feels uh, that whatever I think is the true and accurate depiction of the world, and the way I see the world is the true way it is, uh, and I, all I have to do is get other people convinced that I see the true way. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? <laughs> and so uh, that density and that uh, lack of ground, because you know whatever a thought says is, is coming from me, so it must be true. And you know whatever emotion I'm having has causality and and truth to it, and that's why you know you make me angry, you know, and that sort of of um, a projection. Uh, and it's just it's just a, I mean I it's been so many years since I've lived within that density that it's almost hard for me to recall. But in looking out upon the world, you can really see it at play in the newspapers and beyond. You know, just in everyday life. Uh, and so that density, that you know, that that kind of, um, and and you know, in all of the ways that we build around that density, as I mentioned last time, uh, especially in this culture with the knowledge, the knowledge base. You know, the more I know, uh, really, the more I'm honored in this culture. And so it just keeps packing it in. Just keep, you just keep, you know. So that what we ascend out of when we sit down in meditation, what we begin, the, the ascent begins from that density. And it's beautiful because it immediately captures us if we are attuned to ourselves. When we sit down, there's, there's, a, there's a different way to look at your mind. There's a different way to handle that which we have been uh, held in bondage to, and it begins to this begins to feel like this brain is permeable rather than fixed and encased. And so, and as we practice for longer periods of time and for longer uh, for over the years, it gets progressively lighter. And we begin to have a new orientation to our inward life. It's amazing. And it happens almost beyond our will. It happens independent of our trying to make it happen. It happens kind of on its own, just in the willingness uh, to practice routinely. And this beautiful thing happens where suddenly you have a vantage point, and this is the mountain climb, like when you start hiking up a mountain, ascending a mountain, you, you come to a vista and it's like, oh, wow, this is beautiful. This is like clarity. And that same thing happens in meditation is as we ascend the mountain, it's the feeling of having some sense of objectivity, true objectivity, not opinionated objectivity, which is what we usually call objectivity, but awareness that's free of opinions. So you can trust what it sees. Why do you trust? Why can we trust what it sees? Because it's just seen without a thought, without a thought-laced environment. And you, oh, so this is 
true seeing. And I can trust what I see. I, when I see something and not, and not have it shrouded in my thinking, I can trust that. That's an amazing vantage point. It's amazing. It's an amazing vista of the ascent out of our density. And around one bend, you see a different perspective and a different view of the mountain. And that's an insight. That's the permeation, permutation, not permutation, the permeability of the brain. Things are getting in that never got in before. True perspectives are coming in. And then what an insight is, is a, a, a seeing outside of the embellishment of our conditioning. So we see something independent of our conditioning. And then, of course, as that seeing is brought back into realization, then the mind catches on to it and starts elaborating on it. That's also true of creativity. That's also the definition of creativity. Seeing independently of what the mind or how the mind has encased its thought. And it's a beautiful thing, and however it happens. In this tradition, we call it insight. In science, they call it creativity or other forms or expressions of, of life. So, and it, and it works. And, and, it's, and what this practice is meant to do is to open future and current and future points in which those insights can be seen. New vista points. And what, what we see is that we are here for the first time perhaps in our entire life. We know what we are. We know we have landed. We have a firm place to stand. And no longer are we moving by the, the wind, our inward winds of expectation and time and uh, opinionation and, uh, and moods and attitudes that just whatever was coming up in that current, that persuaded us before. It doesn't persuade us as much anymore. And so the, this beautiful ascent out of our density, you see, it's a be- beautiful. It's beautiful. And it just it, it feels like there's more access to aliveness. That, that something is happening. I'm not, again, I'm not, it's just happening as a part of the participation that I've decided to join. And things begin to be held consciously where before we were uh, afraid to see them. We were in various states of denial. And this sense of becoming more conscious as we ascend into the thinner airs of the mountain hold a fascination for us. Because it's, it's just, you, know, you just, you begin to be able, as Narayan mentioned today about uh, inquisition and in, uh, inquiry, at some point in your practice, it becomes, there becomes this translucency where you ask yourself a question and you see the answer. Just like that. And so nothing is being denied. Not everything is accessible. You see, as we rise up the mountain, the perspective becomes broader, becomes far-reaching. 
and uh, in our relationship to the different densities, like the density of time, as we have been mentioning through this retreat, the, the sense of what a, the past is, what the future is, when we understand what a thought is, we see that that concept of past and future is embedded within a thought. It, it isn't intrinsic to the space that sees the thought. It's intrinsic to the thought that is arising within that space. And if we establish a vantage point within that space, that, you might say, is the movement of time within timelessness. Because awareness, that which sees time, that which knows thought is arising, is not of time. Because it's not a thought. And thought is held within within that space. So we have a newer new understanding of time, and that is a tremendous release. Now, what happens is that we don't follow through. We see it, but we don't follow it, we don't embody it in our life. So that's in the next phase of, of the talk. Remember that point, and remind me if I don't get to it. <laughs> but the de- descent is all about that full embodiment. Okay, so we're still ascending, we're still ascending, and we- as we get th- into thinner air, right, and our insides become, our internal life becomes um, more spacious, there's this beautiful sense of lightness of being. Beautiful sense of lightness of being. You, there's a buoyancy in being and uh, joy, uh, unanticipated joy. Just comes, just comes. There's also um, a beautiful and uh, quite lovely, a sense of love, of appreciation that just arises. And suddenly you'll be at a vista point on the mountain and you'll go, wow, I, I just feel so loving. You know, and, and it wasn't uh, manufactured. It wasn't self-created. It just, there's so these, these moments of, of living the space we see from and feeling the uh, possibilities of being and evolving into a very different kind of human being than we have ever been. Uh, and, And a startling part of that is that as I rise up the mountain and more space is accessible, more love is available. The, there's a diminished sense of me. No, I haven't been out gunning for it. It's just that when we see what a thought is and we don't rely on thinking and we don't rely on our emotions to be accurate and true at all moments of, of the day, and we begin to see our narrative as just constant chatter, not really describing anyone or anything that's that important, really, there comes a natural sense of lightness of being. There comes a kind of translucence of being. Now, this is really interesting. Follow me here. As the sense of I becomes more uh, perforated, right, more translucent, what we see follows suit. 
when I'm very dense and me and full of content in the swirls of thought, when I look out from my eyes, I look out through all of that, through the egoic vantage point. It's a very low place on the mountain. <laughs> like, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but that's what I see is that same density in looking out because that's what I'm looking from. You see what you see from. And that, so if I'm dense and reactive, then that's how I see the world. That's how I see you. And then I relate from that density. I relate from my reactions, I, you know, because all my reactions mean something in there. And so I, re, re, I react to your reactions, and it's, you, it's a chain reaction, really, of just constant collision of chain reaction. And that's a very dense form of seeing. But as this sense of self lightens up through the various ways that I just mentioned, also, the different vistas higher up the mountain start revealing certain secrets about the universe. We start seeing those secrets. Are you excited? <laughs> so, what are those secrets? Okay, so as we go, the first one is, you know, as we... And we don't know how, where it came from, but all of a sudden I just feel things are more connected. Hmm? And if you looked inside, you would see that you feel more connected with what was going on inside. So it's, again, it's a direct relationship of the inward world express, expressed in terms of perspective. But that's just the beginning. As we begin to get a handle on how we can lighten ourselves inside, the vistas begin to change in expression and form. Beautiful. All of the things you've read about, all of the different vantage, spiritual vantage points, all the spiritual perspectives are there as we journey through this lightness of heart. So what are those vantage points? Well, the first one is the sense of interconnectedness, and then that opens to a sense of oneness, Again, it's not that you don't perceive separate forms, but those separate forms are no longer being named internally. And when I name them, I'm a name too. I'm the namer. And then, so the namer, from the density that my, the name gives me and all of the history that the name contains, right? Once I, give, once I know who I am and I give you a name, then I have pigeonholed you in exactly the same way. And so what I see you is a dense form and I'm a dense form because I have named you. But once that naming stops, once I, through words, through uh, thought, thought comes into abeyance, then the naming becomes much quieter. And as it becomes quieter, the fog that you name through begins to clear. So you see, suddenly, the oneness of life. And then you see, as the fog begins to clear, because it gets exciting. At first, you react, oh, I just saw what I, did you see what I saw? This is really exciting to me. And then you're back being dense, because you're back <laughs> lost in the thought of what you just saw. 
and the excitement and enthusiasm and really reactivity to what you just saw, and then it all closes down again. And people say, oh, I've got to get back to that. And so then they try to muscle their way back, and they go down the hill the, rather than rise up the hill. <laughs> OK. So oneness. Well, this is quite amazing. But then when you learn to operate it, when you learn to get a sense of how this thing works, you keep lightening. And then you turn around the mountain, and suddenly there's universal consciousness. And then there's God consciousness. And everything you've ever read, and then there's emptiness. That's another vista. Each vista looks like the final assumption of the universe. Like this one looks like the final assumption of the universe. Every, because there's a whole set of laws and rules that come in from each vantage point. You and me, and all of the rules in time, and distance, and everything is fractured, including love, because nothing is together from, the, from sea level. And that's the way we look at it. So that's, those laws come out of the perspective. And as we raise up the mountain and become lighter, new laws begin to be determined or begin to be seen. When there's oneness, there's love. Love, you begin to see love is not a state that I generate. It's an existing state within this vista. And things, of course, are together because everything holds that perspective. And that, you go, oh, that's it then. This, then. And you hear people claiming absolutism from each perspective. There's only distance. There's only separation. Get on with it. Right? That's science. <laughs> Materialistic. Okay? Then there's a perspective of seeing from Oneness, where the governing laws of the universe are not the separation that were, were the initial expressions, nor are problems to be resolved like they were at sea level. Because love doesn't solve problems and then gets over them. That's, an, that's a disjointed way of looking at the world. That's a separation. That's a, the laws of separation are about problem resolution. This is about problem understanding. This is about wisdom that operates at this level. And as we journey up the mountain, the next perspective of God consciousness means that the sense of I is so vague that there, you can see the, the, the communion of all consciousness being one. That, that's a perspective, people. This isn't th whim Whimsy, whimsical talk. This is true. And when you see that, you're absolutely convinced that that's the sum total of what life is. It is as convincing as the sea level perspective. But there's more. Because the mountain keeps going up. And so we keep journeying it, you see? So we come around the next 
vantage point, and suddenly it's empty. Nothing. Just appearances. And appearances are as thin as a film on a bubble. And it's, you see it. And you, inside, you have it. And outside, you see it. And it's absolutely convincing. And this is a new perspective. And you have people who you meet on the mountain who are sitting on that perspective and refuse to get up. It's all empty. You go on. <laughs> I'm God. You're one of my subjects. Any of, any of those perspectives can become a, a nest for us. All of this is in the ascension. You see? And it all holds a perspective. And you, the one thing about you, one thing that you can be assured of in the ascension is that there's still a film of self in that ascension. No matter what, there's still a slight film of self-consciousness in each one of those perspectives. And wherever the self lies, lie, lies, it lies. <laughs> and there's a beautiful sutta by the Buddha one of my favorites now, in which he goes through 13 different perspectives of the mountaintop. I am one. I am all. I am God. I am, I am this. He says they are all foolish. Foolish. <laughs> my whole practice. <laughs> so then as we're climbing the mountain, you see, you begin to sense that. You begin to sense that you can't climb above yourself. <laughs> and so it gets, it's like, oh, you know. And the other thing you learn is that there's false summits. You know, if I can just get to here, then everything would be resolved. If I can just, ooh. And you get there, and it's like, well, maybe it's the next peak that I can. And so you begin to, you begin to sour on that sense of fault summits. And you also realize at this stage, because this stage is very full of activity, new practices, new teachers, different vantage points. I find one that I'll find a teacher who agrees with me, and then I'll rest on this. <laughs> So there's some guy in the cave somewhere who says, yeah, yeah. oh, I found my master. <laughs> so <laughs> we're just playing, you see. This is all, this is, it's spiritual play, really. But it's, it's really where all the fun is, all, the, all what we really wanted from this thing. You know, we want to see from the, we want to see that. And it's beautiful when it's seen. And it's convincing, absolutely convincing when it's seen. But you don't stop. And as you keep climbing, you know, the air gets thinner and thinner, and suddenly you can't breathe too well. 
you say, you know what? This ain't working. Can you imagine that you're God and you're claiming that it's... <laughs> it's not working being God. Well, give me a few eons to prove that, would you? I would like to stay here a while. And so there's a tremendous uh, a tendency to rest upon what you see and to proclaim what we see. And you can hear it in different traditions, in different times, different, you know, they, they proclaim different vantage points. And I'm not faulting that because it's a tremendously alluring. It's just a false summit. It's a false summit. You see how hard it is to get out of this ground level? Can you imagine how difficult it is to get out of something that takes you, that ascends you out of your difficulties into universal consciousness? You see, this is, we talk about it lightly, but people spend eons in these different perspectives. And you, because you, this is what you really wanted. You know, you didn't want to. Did so we're tested. And this is what I call a false nirvana. The false nirvana is that, you know, this is really what I wanted. It's not freedom, but I'll take it. And so we rest there. And then it's really, you know, you at a su more subtle levels because there's a lot of emptiness in there if you're seen from emptiness to emptiness. There's a lot of emptiness there, so there's not a lot of struggle going on. But there is some struggle because there's still a film of self even in the proclamation that everything is empty. So we sober up. Guess what we do? We go down the mountain. But we came up the mountain. What about all this work? You see? Ascending, we were ascending with ourselves at a very subtle. We carried ourselves along in our backpack. Nice trip. Wonderful. But not quite the answer. Now, the descent, we give up all the ground we just claimed in our ascent. And the very strong perspectives that I have obtained in my ascent, I now have to relinquish in my descent. Why would I ever do that? Why would I go down the mountain? because it's true. No longer no longer are we enslaved to me. We become totally drawn by what is true. That's the only mark that moves us now.
and our desire to know that truth. Now, the yearning for that is in each one of us, but it's pretty thickly coated with a lot of different intentions. And some of those intentions get very get called out at those different perspective points. But this one is like the golden thread of all intentions. I'm willing to, st- I'm willing to release and surrender anything and everything uh, if it's for the truth. And so you start descending. And you're not sure you want to. But you do it anyway. And it's much harder than the SM. Because you're fighting all of the allure of the perspectives. And you thought the SM was hard. It was actually the fun part. This is really takes you to task. And we talk about uh, the dark night of the soul. This is where every piece of you will be challenged. Because we're descending, what, when the, we ascended, we were ascending out of our troubled, struggling relationship with life. Now we are descending back into our humanity. Now let me tell you that for most of us, the ascent out of ourselves was a kind of a parallel track to our psychological and emotional growth. We could leave it behind. It wasn't, we're neurotic as hell, given, but you can kind of walk around the neuroses and still ascent. They're parallel paths. The descent takes us back into those issues. And you have all of the understanding of the ascent as you come back into the full embodiment of our humanity. You don't come back into it the same way. The sense of self doesn't fool you because you've seen it. So it's not like, you know, I'm back just being, you know, tossed around by every whim and every... No, all of that's cleared out forever. But the emotional maturity has to be taken at the level in which it was induced. Let me tell you what that means. We come back into our emotional lives, especially if we circumvented them on the way up. They wait for us on the way down. And they wait for us, and this is the hard part, at the understanding, at the level of understanding, which is sea level or below, in which they were induced in our system. Because when they get activated, that's the level of our understanding. It's the level of understanding that they're actually inducted into us. Do you see? So if you're a three-year-old and you had a bad experience, that comes out of you as a three-year-old. Okay, so now this is very important. There are keys to descending. Now hopefully, I want to encourage you to descend into yourself even as you're ascending out of yourself. Do you know what I'm saying now? That you're embodying these issues and clearing them up so that your descent can be like a slide 
right? <laughs> All right, so as these emotional assumptions start becoming activated and you begin to see them because your clarity and your desire to know what is true is keen, you begin to realize that there is a lot of emotional immaturity in us and that has to be addressed. And it does nothing to the emptiness. The emptiness absolutely remains empty. And yet at the same moment you are the three-year-old. That may mean nothing to you. But it means an awful lot to me because you can be both, both of those simultaneously. And when you come into your embodied expression of wherever that assumption was laid down, and usually for us the assumption is something about inadequacy, that root assumption that guides much of our life and from which we try to act out in various forms, when that comes, comes back in, we believe, the, the system believes that it's where it was inducted, as I mentioned, and that is a burning hot coal of this is really who I am. Right? Okay. The difference is that that coal is held side by side with emptiness. Just follow this logically. Whereas the emptiness is the immediacy of the present. In the immediacy of the present, before things are formed, not for, when we are sitting here being present, the past is shooting through us. What most of us see when we look through the present is the past. Oh, I remember you, I see you, I recognize this, I see that. All of that is the past being related to from the present. And so, too, when we are feeling these emotional issues, the past very convincingly comes through the present and convinces us, mostly it convinces us now, to say, oh, yeah, I am that awful person and I never have been able to do anything and I'm a rotten this and I can't do that and I've failed at this. We just recertify its truth, send it down, repackage it, and the conditioning gets stronger. But this is what happens when you descend after the ascent, is that you, and you can do it now. I'm not suggesting that you have to wait until you have perfect emptiness or God consciousness. Those were false summits. You don't ever have to have that. What you do have to do is to meet the past with the present and not believe in the past as it's pouring through the present. It requires our belief to recondition itself. But if we just hold the present and let the past come through, knowing that everything that comes through from my first talk is the conditioned reference of mind, but the present isn't the conditioned reference of the mind. The conditioned reference of the mind is what I see within the present. It's the content of the present. And so I hold the content, see it for what it is, not add anything to it. Don't say any, don't add any more to what's already there. But let what's already there express itself through the present. Now you are healing 
the past from the present. Rather than recertifying the past in the present. Do you see the difference? A little bit? And each of us can do that now. That's what this practice is meant to do. It's meant to bring a full embodied relationship as we ascend beyond the egoic identity. And so as we sit there, what we're asking all of you to do is to just hold in awareness whatever it is that comes through the mind. Whatever the mind does, it's all past people. Nothing of it is verifiable. Nothing of it certifies that you are the person that did that awful thing. Nothing of that is recertified. You're not recertifiable. (laughs) So that's true emptiness, you see. It doesn't mean that all the stuff goes away. It doesn't go away. And you may lose your footing within that. I certainly do. It doesn't matter, though. Nothing happens to the emptiness. You just, okay. I can't gain footing anymore. Now that's said differently. That's the end of karma. You see? Because as karma tries to gain, it doesn't, it can't always before it has, through our actions, through our reactions, through our recertification. We've just been reinvesting in the karma that is coming out. But now it doesn't. It has no foothold. Why? Because we're meeting whatever is there in awareness. And you know what else you meet? You meet yourself. The residue of yourself. That film of self. That's part of the karmic hold that followed us all the way up the mountaintop. This gets me excited because it means no matter what your history, no matter what your disposition, no matter what your character, no matter what your past, no matter what your traumas, this is possible. What holds us back is the belief that it's not. And what is that? That's a thought. And we're giving up our salvation because we believe in our past more than the present. How can we not believe in the present more than the past? The past is nothing but a thought. How can a thought hold weight in this? There it is, you see. There's a beautiful story of Manjushri, a young practitioner climbing up the mountain, ascending the mountain, right? And this old man with a bundle on his back, old man, bearded, 
bent over, walking stick, bundle on his back, walking down. Manjushri in his youth and his muscled tone, walking up the hill, senses that this old man might know something, having been up the mountaintop, and stops and says, old man, what do you know about enlightenment? And the old man drops his bag. And at that moment, it said, Manjushri, awake. And then Manjushri says to the old man, and now what? <laughs> and the old man picks up his bag and goes down the mountain. <laughs> Returning to our humanity is one of the most difficult decisions. It's not really a decision. You just do it because you know that's the truth. But you descend back into your incarnation fully because you have to. <laughs> because it's the only place in which is dead zero. Everything else has elevation gain or elevation loss. And it's only at dead zero that we can truly live. It's only at sea level. That means releasing all expressions, forms, and attachments to every one of the vistas. Delighted in them. They were wonderful. I loved it. You loved it. Everybody loves it. But you come back to this. Fully embodied, fully engaged. Now you understand why Narayan and I teach from the city. May we all be so included. Can we sit for a minute or two? You can, you can feel the power of the present, you see. And all we need to do is to release everything to it. Just It's a surrender game, everyone. It's a release game. That's the mechanism of living from zero as zero.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.